0: Welcome back to the Dissolve podcast for episode 24, Muffing Up the Sex Talk Edition. I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at The Dissolve. Last week's release of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes got us in a mood to look back at the long history of the Apes franchise and consider the cultural continuity of a series that hasn't actually been strong in continuity itself. Sex Tape has us thinking about how sex comedies work, or don't work, and why the teen sex comedy is such an easy-to-define genre, while adult sex comedies are more elusive. Our game for the week, In a World, calls on players to identify the trailers of some favorite movies that were sold in ways they may not remember. And as always, we close with our Dueling Recommendations segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. Here at The Dissolve, we were all a little surprised at how much we enjoyed Rise of the Planet of the Apes, a 2011 reboot of the 1970s film franchise that sprawled across five movies, two TV series, a long-running comic series, a beloved toy line, and a poorly received 2001 Tim Burton remake. The latest in the new series, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, is in theaters now, and like its predecessor, it's surprisingly emotionally and narratively sophisticated, especially for a movie where a CGI chimp rides a horse through an explosion while simultaneously firing two heavy machine guns. It feels like the Apes movies have grown up alongside us, but they're still trying to appeal to the inner kids who like talking animals and big explosions, even more so than the original movies, which had both of those things, plus a particularly 1970s outlook on humanity's future. Here to talk about the impact of the 1970 series and how the franchise has developed over time are...
1: Keith Phipps, Noel Murray. And Matt Singer.
0: So, Keith, um, you and I saw uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes last night. Matt and uh, Noel haven't seen it yet. Can you just uh, talk briefly about... Uh, the? There's a degree to which the newest film... Borrows from the last couple of uh, the 1970s movies and kind of changes some of the material well, while still kind of respecting the original. I think you're the only one who's both seen those old movies recently and has actually seen the remake. Yeah, I
2: mean, the Rise of the Planet of the Apes had borrowed a lot, from, at least in the broad strokes, from Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, the fourth apes film. Uh, which which is actually one of the best, and, and it's it's sort of uh, it charts the the um, kind of coming into consciousness and uprising of apes in the twentieth century. And this one borrows some from that and also from Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which is the last and definitely the least of the original series. But uh, the setup of having a colony of, of humans and a colony of apes who come into conflict over how they're going to live together or if they're going to live together at all or if they can just wipe each other out is uh, very much Battle of the Planet of the Apes.
0: Uh, Matt and Noel, you guys have both seen Rise and liked it a lot. Is that true?
3: That's
1: true. Yes.
0: So what do you make, I mean, I, I, I'm given to understand that you're also both big fans of the 1970s movies. What do you make about the transition uh, from basically 1970s filmmaking to, to teens filmmaking? You know, the new films are very CGI oriented. They're very kind of, you know, modern Peter Jackson inflected, uh, like action fantasy storytelling. But it seems to me like they still kind of reflect uh, some of the 1970s elements. What, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think what I like mainly about it is that uh, it it does pick up on some of the, uh, the the social and political elements of of the original films. Um, I mean, I don't know, I, you know. People have tried to analyze what the nineteen seventies films were were actually about. Um, I think one of the things that makes it difficult when it comes to analyzing the Apes films is the idea that you were calling people apes. (laughs) So so when you're trying to decide whether the apes stand for, you know, the counterculture or minorities or anything else, it it can come off as a little bit uh, uh, dicey. That said, uh, you know, the the original apes films were definitely talking about changes in society. Uh, And I think the new apes films do the same. It's just that I think rather than dealing with cultural changes, they're more about sort of environmental changes and, and our attempts to... Exert some control over nature when it turns out that nature is just going to do its own thing anyway Well,
2: I think I think one thing the new one proves is it's a pretty it's a pretty malleable uh, Metaphor. I mean the early films were I mean race is a subtext to all of them and in this one It kind of turns San Francisco and Muir Muir Woods above it into a global hotspot uh, Where you have two competing ideologies and 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 people uh, Competing for for the same thing. I mean it is it is Broadly, uh, Israel-Palestine or any other place where where you have that kind of situation, I think it plays that very well, and in a way that plays against our sympathies uh, for both sides, like shifting them, uh, as, as Tasha has said, uh, sometimes within the same scene.
0: Yeah, it's it's very complicated than the newest film in terms of where your sympathies lie, and one of the things that interested me is uh, like a sense that that at least has a continuity with the 70s series that there's this this kind of sense starting with the first film that you're you know rooting for this outsider this stranger in a strange land who's just trying to survive but then your sympathies kind of shift to you know some of the the kinder apes who are just trying to get along in like their civilization which is being disrupted by this weird outsider and then you know when you start to discover other humans they're horrible mutants and i just as you get into the the modern day films there's sort of a sense of you know who exactly am i rooting for here and that all, all happens in the original series in a very dark you know conflicted emotional 70s way here it just it sort of comes across to me at least as maintaining a balance of sympathies to make it clear how much we have in common with the apes which I think is is kind of a new element but uh, Matt what do you think about uh, just sort of the the metaphorical level of the the whole series
1: I haven't seen Dawn yet but just speaking to Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, obviously technically it was a you know major leap forward and did some incredible things visually but it still felt like a throwback to the original series and it didn't really matter what what the you know metaphor was and as I think Noel said and Keith said you know what the the older movies were about or what they were critiquing or talking about kind of changed from movie to movie the fact remained that they were always talking about something, and I think that's what Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and hopefully to me, uh, I'm looking forward to about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and didn't like about the Tim Burton one, was those old movies had something to talk about, and they were interesting, and weird, and strange, and they were full of ideas. Whether or not those ideas always panned out, whether or not the movies were entirely successful, they, they really gave you something to chew on, and... The Tim Burton one does not, and *Rise of the Planet of the Apes* did that. Uh, you know, I thought uh, pretty successfully, and also maintained that the atmosphere of the old movies, which were always so dark and fatalistic, maybe the most fatalistic franchise uh, in in Hollywood history, and *Rise of the Planet of the Apes*. I thought maintained that very well in, in terms of giving you a mildly happy ending that was also incredibly depressing and involved like the end of civilization. Uh, and so that was something that I really love about the old movies that I thought the, the, the first and the rebooted franchise did a really good job of carrying forward.
2: Yeah, I, but, I think one thing, uh, I mean, the endings to all the originals are, are pretty dark, um, the fifth one less so. But uh, but this, I, not to give anything away, but it also, like, like Rise of the Planet of the Age, It ends on an inconclusive inconclusive note, as if we don't really know what the future is. The future is unwritten, and it it doesn't necessarily look that good, Um, but uh, I like that about it. It it seems uh, right for the times in a way.
0: Although it also ends on a very blockbuster, uh, this is the middle movie of a trilogy kind sure. of note. I mean, the inconclusiveness there, I think, is less the sense that, you know, this is this is a dark story, uh, and we don't know what the future holds, and much more a sense of, we know what the future holds. The future holds a third ape movie in 2016, yeah. <laughs> again, directed by Matt Reeves. <laughs>
2: yeah, sure. I mean, that, that's, that's fair to say, but, but I do feel like it is true to what the, st- the story they've set up. Uh, that it doesn't have a conclusive ending. That, that it is, uh, they, they set up an unwinnable situation and, and uh, uh, the ending kind of follows suit from that. Again, I'm trying to talk around, uh, <laughs> talk around sure, for people and, who haven't seen the movie.
0: And I'm also going to talk around, like we're not going to get any spoilers here, but uh, I mean, I will say that Don kind of has a sense of, there's almost a, an idea that we could, you know, maybe come to cooperate and, and come to uh, peace at the end. And that idea is pretty much rejected, not just under the rubric, of we're going to have another movie, but also under the rubric of we know where this whole story is leading. It's leading to a planet of apes. It's not sure. leading to a planet of <laughs> apes and humans cooperating right. and living in harmony.
2: Uh, you know, one and, thing and I liked about the movie um, and and, the, and its predecessor is... Which that, one? Uh, both Dawn and Rise, uh, is that it sets up these... Like the sets of these decks were like oh if this happens horrible things will happen and then that thing happens mm-hmm. you know it's it's, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's remarkable in in uh, in these films
0: and that's really going back to the original series I mean I thinking about the ending of uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes there's just that that sense of so a horrible catastrophe might happen oh wait it happened <laughs>
2: <laughs> Matt you're trying to say something
1: yeah just that I. I basically the same thing just that the that, that that mood definitely harkens back to the earlier films particularly the the third and fourth in the original series where they were prequels and they always had that kind of inevitable end in mind that fact that you know this is before the planet of the apes but eventually the planet of the apes will happen and you a lot of those stories are about sort of characters trying to fight against that inevitability but they're they're all they're almost always in, <laughs> unsuccessful and i think that's something that kind of makes those movies interesting in a way is that the characters uh who uh, who are fighting against the planet of the apes who are trying to prevent it from happening they're often the villains uh like in the third film escape from the planet of the apes the humans and particularly this one kind of evil scientist who's trying to prevent uh the ape characters from having a baby that could potentially lead to the rise of intelligent apes Blah, 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 blah. like <laughs> that character is is basically the villain but i mean, at the same token he kind of you know from a human perspective he sort of has a point like he's trying to uh, prevent the end of humanity which is seemingly a noble goal um but one, he goes about it in sort of a dark and sinister way, and we kind of like the apes' characters by this point, and also there the kind of feels like there's no stopping it because we've already seen Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and those happen in the future. And I always liked that about them, that the fact that this dark future is somehow inevitable.
3: Yeah, for, 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 for me, part, part of the fun of those old movies, too, was trying to uh, piece together what happened, You know, trying, to, try and, to try and fill in the gaps between the movies and... And uh, yeah, me and my friends, we watch these films and we watched the TV series and we'd like, we'd play Planet of the Apes, you know, on, on the playground. And, and, and part of the, uh, you know, I think the pleasure of the whole Planet of the Apes series was figuring out the mythology and piecing it together and, and, and filling in the gaps yourself.
0: And one of, the, one of the ways that that sort of happened was through all of this ancillary material. I mean, there was a live action TV show, there was an animated TV show. Um, I was just reading that there's basically been Planet of the Apes comic books since, like, almost uh, continually since 1968. And you, I mean, you have a whole column about this kind of stuff, Noel. You've experienced a lot of that stuff. And you're also looking at some of the ancillary material that's being released now to bridge the gaps between films. How are you seeing sort of that, uh, that material being being used to to kind of forward the story and help people fill in the gaps
3: well I know that between uh, dawn and rise there's been a novelization uh, which I read which kind of explains what happened in the 10 years that that take place between the two films uh, they also put out a series of short films that I posted on the dissolve uh, that also tried to try to explain some of what happened in the 10 years between those two movies um, and again it's, it's it's part of that same tradition I think people like that idea that the story jumps ahead and then we have to catch up to what's happened but there are these little uh little sub that we can still follow about characters that are not in the movies but that were affected by in the case of uh these two movies the two recent movies the Simeon flu and and how it changed society um and you know i it's 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 the mythology of it all it's it's fun to immerse yourself into a world beyond just what's on the screen and try and kind of look beyond the outside of it and, 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 you know, uh, interact with it, engage with it.
0: Matt and Keith, you guys have both had a long-term relationship with these films. Did you ever have any kind of relationship with like any of that outside material?
2: You know, not really. Actually, I, it's it's funny. Um, Battle from the Planet of the Apes was one that was like always on TV when I was a kid, and, and it's the one I ended up seeing the most as a kid. But I never saw the TV show. I was a little, I was a little too young. I was, I mean, I was a little too young for Planet of the Apes. Just the right age for Star Wars.
0: Matt.
1: Yeah, I'm. Not, I've, I've seen all the Apes movies, but I've never seen any of the Apes TV shows, the animated shows, anything like that uh... the one thing i have done is read some of the comics there's uh... The, the the current sort of uh... revival of the comics the planet of the apes comics is by this company boom studios and the stuff they've been doing is actually really good the first mini series that they put out i think like two thousand eleven uh, is called Betrayal of the Planet of the Apes, and it it takes place in the future. It's sort of in the old, you know, the old movie series uh, continuity. I think Dr. Zayus is the, you know is like in there with one of, one of the main characters of that. And I thought that was a really uh, great book. Had a sequel as well that was called Exile on the Planet of the Apes, <laughs> which is pretty good as well. Um, but I would I would say if you're a fan of the old movies. Uh, I would recommend that that first miniseries, the Betrayal of the Planet Apes. I thought it was really, really good, very much in the in the tone and the style of those old films. Uh, so I, I'm not too familiar with the previous uh, Apes comics that I think were like Dark Horse, and there's probably a bunch of other other companies that have had the license as well. But the the recent stuff is actually really good. If if you're a fan of the movies, yeah, I, I liked them.
0: One of the things that in uh, this new one uh, just kind of brought up for me that I hadn't realized before but I think has been there all along is this series reminds me a lot of uh, George Romero's zombies movies. There's that same sort of sense of there's uh, symbolism, but it's it maybe mutating from movie to movie. The Rise of Caesar actually, uh, to me, Parallels a lot of the sort of shifting sympathy stuff going on in land of the dead um, With a big daddy zombie like slowly achieving sentience and, and leading the zombies There's just sort of that sense that you know, this is a metaphor that can fit anything But we're using it to kind of show the gradual takeover and loss of humanity. Did do you guys see that parallel?
2: Um, yeah, actually that, that occurred to me too watching it in, in a way I was thinking this is in some ways a more malleable um uh, metaphor than zombies because you can make the apes uh talk and do things and talk back to you or zombies will basically just swarm and kill you. I, I may mean, I'm oversimplifying, but yeah, it seems like this this series in particular seems to be um kind of kind of uh, exploiting some of the same metaphorical possibilities.
0: An ape for all seasons. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Just, just just, tell me this, guys, does the new movie end with a statue of Ape Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> ape Lincoln.
2: Uh, that's an unanswered question. It's a dangling thread. When's Tim Burton going to go back and answer that one?
3: Oh, exactly.
0: The, the the why of it all. All right, lightning round. Uh, you've got eight movies to choose from, guys. What's your favorite Ape movie? Keith? It's
2: still the first one for me um, and of the original series. I think Conquest is the un- underrated uh, gem, but uh, this one's really good.
1: Matt? Uh, I, I have almost the exact same answer. I mean, the original is such a classic, but the one that people should not sleep on from the original series is definitely Conquest of the of the Planet of the Apes. That is a, a crazy movie. And the second half of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, the first half of Beneath the Planet of the Apes is almost a beat for beat remake of the original movie with a different guy in the in the Charlton Heston role who even kind of looks like Charlton Heston does all the exact same things but the second half of the movie where they meet these mutants and and uh, it gets into some really interesting religious commentary is really really fascinating and the end the end of that movie is just i mean you want to talk about bummers? It's it's the all time the all time dark bummer ending. Rated so G. So that's yeah. that's that's another one I really really like, too. Both
2: that and the third one were both rated G too, which is remarkable. Oh, uh, and it's one, insane. one 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 th- one other thing about Conquest is the, watch the director's cut and then watch the 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 version that actually came out where they they uh, softened the ending considerably. Um, the the in Conquest the original Conquest it's basically you side with the rebellious apes and they do their thing and it
4: goes
0: to some pretty dark places. All right, Noel, favorite Apes movie?
3: Well, until I see the new one, I'm going to take Rise. Actually, uh, it was such an unexpected experience. I guess when it, when it when it came out, it sort of uh, it didn't have the buzz of some of the other other movies that summer. It came out in August um and it was just an, an utter delight and and uh thought-provoking and moving and all those things you want from an apes movie all
0: right thanks guys uh i'm going to go learn sign language in order to please our new ape overlords uh and until the planet of the apes rises or the zombies take over i'm looking forward to the apes versus zombies uh <laughs> edition of both franchises <laughs> when you're on the crossover uh but until then thanks for talking When we were planning this podcast, we had a fairly knee-jerk reaction to the not-so-great comedy Sex Tape. Hey, let's talk about sex comedies. The problem is that sex comedies isn't actually a well-defined genre, especially since sex is such a rich topic for comedy that an awful lot of comedies have sex and sexuality in them somewhere. So what defines a sex comedy and what makes them work? Here with everything you wanted to know about sex comedies but were afraid to ask are... Scott Tobias and Nathan Raven. So, guys, uh, here's here's my running theory. The teen sex comedy is a very well-defined genre. When you say that, pretty much everybody knows what you mean and can rattle off a list of examples. When you talk about adult sex comedies, it gets a little hairier. And my theory there. <laughs> you made some some pubic
4: uh, joke there, Tasha.
0: <laughs> oh, and that we just we just dove straight down into the gutter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. Uh, like, the, the teen sex comedy mentality is kind of adolescent. The idea that, uh, you know... Uh, you muffed
4: it up, Tasha. We're going...
5: I would like to officially wow. call for an end to all uh, double entendres. Uh, they have no place in a conversation about sex comedies. So just 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 gonna... they have no place in sex comedies themselves.
0: So you think we should just go with a single entendre, therefore penis?
5: I... <laughs> Whoa. I, I should probably say at this point that I'm incredibly prudish. Uh, and just, <laughs> just, just saying the word sex, it makes me deeply uncomfortable
0: well you have got Just something in common in you've got something in common with Woody Allen there you've know, the,
5: you also made the movie uh everything you wanted to know about sex uh, but we're afraid to ask which is an example of a very poor sex comedy
0: and a very squeamish sex comedy but yeah. but anyway I, I, so <laughs> <laughs> you, you have you, a theory, You Tasha. finally you, found a way to fluster me, Scott. Tasha, Tobias. you have
5: a really good theory that you wish to share with us. Yes. Uh,
0: yes and it has Even if to, you have to reiterate it. it. has to do with Scott's pubic hair.
5: Now,
4: <laughs> and you've that's, gone, now you've gone too far.
0: That's the title of the, the podcast okay. right there. Um, teen sex comedies, obviously a thing. Adult sex comedies, a thing. Quest skeptical question mark like when I was researching uh, this podcast, I searched you know adult sex comedies and there are a lot of lists of them out there and those lists are heavily populated with stuff that either is clearly teen sex comedies. Or is questionably sex comedies in general, stuff like Harold and Kumar or uh, Drillbit Taylor, a bunch of really, really random uh, comedies that I think uh, maybe there's a sex
5: joke in there somewhere. Well, that's the porn version of Drillbit Taylor. It's actually just called Drillbit Taylor. It already (laughs) sounds a little bit
0: dirty there. So here's the question. Is adult sex comedy a genre at all? Like, how do we define it?
4: Adult sex comedy. I don't know if it's really a, a genre. I think you can just you can kind of think about um, uh, movies uh, with adults where sex is sort of the primary uh, focus, right? Focus. I mean, something like I guess the forty-year-old version would mm-hmm. be a, would be a good uh, a- example, or um, or you know, skin deep. <laughs> yeah, Blake Edwards' is *Skin Deep* w- w- would be would be an example, but I think sex comedy as a as a term has been sort of hijacked by I guess *Porky's* would probably be the start of it, and then and then a- after that *American Pie* came along, and so I think that's I think we really think of it in a very narrow way, which is which is uh, you know it has to do with teenagers, it has to do with with boys almost exclusively, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it has to and and it's a lot of. Humula- about it's all about humiliation and suffer and uh you know, first you know virginity experiences, your mm-hmm. first time experiences, uh, jokes made out of out of an experience. Well, it's, in, a, ex,
5: right. it's interesting that uh, Scott mentioned the forty year old virgin, which I believe you referred to as the best uh, sex comedy of all time, uh, a, a few years it back. Really, I, I believe you did. And I think one of the interesting things about that is that it shares a theme with teen sex comedies, which yes. is it's about a dude who wants to get laid for the first time, uh, uh, who wants to get laid for the first time. Exactly, He wants to lose his virginity, um, but it goes about it in a way that is. Really interesting and kind of nuanced and adult and, and multi-dimensional, which I think kind of um, frees it from the sex comedy trap. And I almost feel like it's it's a, a weird um, there's a stigma attached to sex comedies. Oh sure. Where if something is good, if something is particularly good, we don't think of it as a sex comedy. And because of that, we think of sex comedies as being inherently terrible. Mm-hmm. And I you know I just recently for for Gotbusters I wrote about uh, movie ten. Which I think is a good example of a sex comedy. It's about sex. Uh, it's known for sex. But one of the things that's really interesting about it is that uh, Dudley Moore, who is the protagonist, at no point actually effectively has sex. <laughs> so it's it's a sex comedy about a man obsessed with sex who does not have sex. But it is only remembered for its sexual component. And I think people remember Bo Derek's performance more than they do Dudley Moore, uh, who you know actually is dealing with you know these very adult sexual problems.
0: Well, I think. Bron Jeremy pretty famously said, "You can't you can't laugh and maintain an erection at the same time." That that's he said, that, I should know. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's tried
5: it, that's why all of my stand up comedy is so terrible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh God, Ron Jeremy's stand-up yeah, comedy. Uh, it's it the the two the sex and comedy go together really well. But it's it's mostly as Scott says, inexperience and humiliation. Or you know, as you say, kind of the the humiliation of like looking for sex and not necessarily being able to get it. Like that is a rich well of comedy. But like actual sex, not so much. And it's the same thing in teen sex comedies. Like a, a teen sex comedy is maybe one percent actual sex eventually happening and. 90% ninety nine percent chasing it. Because I like if you actually have erotic like erotic sexuality as you're more likely to in an adult an adult film, suddenly it, it's harder to make that funny Mm -hmm. so I mean I think that some of the adult sex comedies that work best 40 year old virgin uh probably the highest among them work because they they go into that exact same place as the teen sex comedy but then you're kind of back to like how do you make sex funny for adults how how do you make a a sex comedy movie that's like that's actually worthwhile that isn't just a teen sex comedy in grown-up clothes
4: well I think it's I think one of the things that the 40 Year old virgin has in its favor and and also fast times at original high which kind of has six comedy elements to it is that it has and it has candor to it and it has insight uh on top of just on top of you know sort of juvenile laughs um uh one of my big problems with with sex tape is that the 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 reason that this couple make a sex tape is because you know their marriage has kind of gone flat they have two kids they don't really have sex very often and so this is kind of you know once they try it becomes very awkward and hard for them to do and so they make the sex tape but the film is what the film is really about though is them doing all these crazy things to try to keep the sex tape from proliferating around the whatever the web Um, it's very confusing it's one of the weirdest films about technology I've ever seen but 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 it just it kind of avoids the issue Um, you know one thing I I, you know contrast that with something a movie that I think is really underrated um, that is a a uh, comedy about sex anyway is um, Hope Springs with uh, what it was? Who were, they, who were the stars? Like it was. Uh, Tommy
5: uh, Jones. Tamalee Jones uh, Meryl and, and Meryl Streep. That's right. They, Steve Carell. Steve Carell.
4: That's right. But th- there's one one where we're, you know a similar situation where a married couple um, just you know their 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 life has sort of gone out of their their, their marriage. Um, Meryl Streep in particular is unhappy with it and wants and wants to have some sort of love life. And they go to Steve Carell, who's this counselor who's going to kind of like bring them back together. And and uh, that film has some some pretty you know, silly moments in it, but it's also honest. You know, and it also and, and it's insightful, and uh, and it's it's got a kind of a, another side to it. Uh, you know, I just feel like the 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 formula for something like American Pie and those t- sorts of films is like, at best, they're kind of sweet sometimes, but mm-hmm. it's really right. just kind of about you know. B-
5: you know, a bunch of sort of juvenile sex jokes that
4: some are funnier than others.
5: Well, and I think sex is such a rich, uh, fertile topic for movies, uh, such a great theme, you know, that it's even more frustrating. And I I think about, like, Nymphomaniac uh, as being a kind of a sex comedy in that it is very, (laughs) very, very very funny. Um, But it's also very explicitly about sex. And I think with that, I think a, a part of what makes it work is not being afraid of sex and being kind of fearlessly transgressive, kind of pushing things to a kind of ridiculous uh, sort of comic extreme kind of grotesque level, as opposed to just kind of snickering and giggling at sex, which I feel like is kind of the the default mode of uh, a lot of teen sex comedies and then also a lot of adults uh, sex comedies as well.
0: I was trying to think of uh, adult sex comedies that that are both funny and that do something interesting with sex, and about the only one I came up with actually was Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, which I think is a, actually a really underrated comedy, and it has some really fun songs. But I think what makes that movie interesting is that, it's, I mean, it's its not super graphic about sex, but no. it's very unashamed. Yeah. Um, a, like, There's a whorehouse
5: right in the title. <laughs>
0: But it's also you know there's nudity, there's nudity, there's uh, of both male and female nudity, um, and there's a lot of like graphic talk about sex and like the desire for sex. But sex is portrayed as like a fun thing that adults do, and the movie kind of makes fun of like the prudes that take advantage of uh, the disapproval of sex or that try to sh- shut down people or prevent people from having sex. I mean, it's a moralistic movie that says sex is entirely moral and is a lot of fun. And I think that's actually really rare in sex comedy.
5: Well, I mean, I think part of the reason why we have difficulty making really good uh, sex comedies in the United States is because I feel like our culture has a very strange, very contradictory attitude towards sex. On one hand, we're incredibly voyeuristic, the same time we're incredibly prudish. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of manifests itself, where we have a difficult time dealing with sex in an adult way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, paradoxically, that is what makes a good sex comedy, is that it actually thinks about sex in a way that is adult, mm-hmm. uh, that is mature, that, that you know sees it as a part of of life and as something that's very very complicated, as opposed to something that's just really awesome and you fucking want it and it's super cool <laughs> and it's and it sucks that all these girls with big boobs won't let you do it with them. Um, So, yeah, I think that's our our difficulty is making good palatable sex comedies in some ways is a reflection of our culture's fucked up ideas about sex.
0: I mean, even getting outside the fucked up ideas of sex, I think there is a, a definite attitude that a teen boy, especially a teen version boy who thinks about nothing but sex all the time, is funny but also understandable and like logical and like makes sense. That's something that people have experienced but an adult that thinks about sex all the time to the degree that it can be the major topic of a movie uh, is a little sad and pathetic because by the time you're an adult you're supposed to have all of the sex sorted out which is not necessarily something that actually uh, occurs in the real world so it's surprising to me that there isn't more of like a rich vein of mining some of the problems that like adult people that have sexually, apart from basically impotence jokes. I mean, (laughs) it seems like film pretty much skips directly from uh, virginal and inexperienced and can't get sexed it can't get it up and there's right. not much m- space in between. Do you guys have any other examples of adult sex comedies that work for you? Uh, well I think if you
4: are if you want to really rewind a bit uh, you know you can go to a time when you, you really couldn't be explicit and so mm. a lot of a lot of things could be sort of plugged into the dialogue. I mean we did a movie of the week on Trouble in Paradise which is one of my favorite mm. uh, comedies ever made and that film is just absolutely packed with double, sex with on time. Yeah absolutely you know or the Lady Eve another one of my f- favorite films I mean again at, is about as sexually charged as a film c- c- can get without you know but uh, and I'm not, usually not the sort I kind of tend to flinch at the whole thing where people are like Whoa, well you don't show anything and it's all suggestive and that's much sexier I think that's a, you know I don't know I, I don't know about that but but uh, but in, the, in this case yes I mean there's a discipline to it and there's also a subversion to it as well of just like we're going to kind of get away with something by by doing this and so and so if you're in on that it's it's sophisticated and funny and very adult.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, feeling with the, some of the older films, especially under the Hays Code, that you can read sex into things either because there's like sexual imagery, like trains going into tunnels uh, that mm-hmm. can't really be misinterpreted, but certainly aren't graphic, or uh, you know, just sort of the rubric of like whenever you have two people of opp- the opposite sex alone in a room and uh, the you fade to black, you just assume that they have sex. But Trouble in Paradise is it's not suggest. <laughs> in the sense that it's hinting at sex. It's suggestive in the sense that they're making a lot of sex jokes. <laughs> it really, yeah. It's really blatant and really enjoyable. No, it's well, weird,
5: and for it's me, uh, I guess something that kind of stand out for me, uh, Girl Can't Help It. Mm. Uh, Frank Taschen was somebody who uh, treated sex in an incredibly juvenile, kind of cartoonish way. Uh, that really, really worked, in part because he was uh, a former animator. He kind of brought that sort of pop sensibility uh, to his work. Um, Russ Meyer. I, I would uh, <laughs> say Faster Get Kill Kill and... Um, Beyond the, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls are two of my favorite sex comedies of all time. Because, again, there's not just sex. There is this insane, uh, intense, crazy take on it that is utterly, utterly, utterly. Uh, and I realize that i mean being incredibly contradictory. We should be incredibly mature in the way we talk about sex. Or we should be total spazzy uh, 12-year-old boys. Hmm. Nothing in between. Both of these things are nothing fun. in between.
0: I mean, Russ Meyer is just uh, I, his your AV Club interview with him remains one of my favorite things that that ever happened at that oh, site. Thank He's you. just so unashamed and, and unabashed about.
5: <laughs> he is who he is. He, he, there's like a, a strange nobility in his unabashed pervdom.
0: So, uh, sort of to wrap up, do you guys think uh, is is there hope for sex comedy in the uh, in the future? Like, can if if most of the good sex comedies are are that far in the past? is there a way to get around the puritanism and uh, and make a good sex comedy today
4: i'm not sure that there is at least in, through hollywood um because i i, I feel like that the comedies, the way comedies are made in hollywood now are in take on the same sort of blockbuster mentality that that uh bigger budgeted films have and, and they, they go for huge laughs in order to do that you've got you know, it, everything has to be, you know, amplified in a way that that's that kind of forbids more subtle jokes. Um, so uh, I'm a little bit pessimistic about it. Not a good track record in general. Um, actually, I have one kind of question I want to throw out too. I mean, we never really talked about the gender issue as well. I mean, we talked about how it's how these these uh, sex comedies are are almost entirely about about boys. Uh, is there is it is it imp- can you imagine a sex
5: comedy about girls
4: that would be the,
5: that There was a one, do list, yeah. Uh, I think which I did not see, but you know, the fact that it was uh, written by a woman and directed by a woman and, and kind of female based made it a lot more appealing to me, uh, <laughs> made it a lot harder for me to not see that motion picture, which I did not. But yeah, I think that might be one of the salvations uh, of the sex comedy is to bring in more voices, more uh, opinions, more and more, uh, you know, to kind of get beyond what are aesthetic cliches that I think we're all really, really with.
0: Which we keep kind of circling back to uh, Gillian Robespierre's Obvious Child, which I didn't adore as much as a lot of people at this site, but it, it is pretty much a sex comedy. I mean, it's about uh, the
5: complications that happen with sex.
0: Yeah. The, the, and not just the pregnancy, you know, it, about, you know, breaking up and wanting sex afterwards and a one night stand and dealing with the emotional ramifications of that. And it's, it's all comic, but it's also very uh, unashamed and unabashed about just getting laid is fun.
5: Well, also non judgmental. You know, there's no sense that, you know, she got pregnant as like a punishment for being irresponsible or anything. It's just kind of like these are the things that happen in life when you don't do certain things.
0: So I guess uh, we're back to where we always are, which is the, you know, the answer to the gender problem in film is more diverse people and with more diverse voices making film. I don't know if that's going to fix sex comedies, because uh, sex comedies is a, a long and complicated problem, and so is American Puritanism. But we can always hope for the future. Um, if you guys excuse me, I'm going to go engage in some zany antics in hopes of finally getting laid for the first time. Uh, I may ask you to help me, uh, possibly by holding up a boom box or engaging in some really, really complicated uh, trick or trap. Or maybe we're just going to cut to a, a train going into a tunnel. Thanks, guys. <laughs> okay. Ooh, okay. Now it's time for our podcast game, which this time around was inspired by our top 50 summer blockbuster list. When we were putting it together, Genevieve casually noted that she was watching the trailers for the films on our list, and that the art of making trailers has really changed radically over the past few decades. So here's a game called In a World, where we dive into some older trailers and ask competitors to identify these films from audio snippets from their ads. These films aren't all on our blockbusters lists, but they all are extremely familiar beloved movies, and they're all from at least 15 years ago. The Scott Tobias rule is in effect, so buzzing in with wrong answer loses you points, and you get bragging rights, but no points if you're the first to identify a film after the title has come up in the ad. Here to compete are Nathan Rabin, Scott Tobias, Scott is experiencing a little functional difficulty, and Keith Phipps.
4: Still the sex comedy talk.
0: Scott, how are you going to win this game if you can't even uh, crow?
4: But yeah, let's go.
0: Okay. So, uh, these have to
4: be, these are from at least 15 years ago. These are not within the No, last they're
0: years. all from 15 years ago or further back. Okay. All right. Here we go with number one.
4: In a world that's powered by Good fellas.
0: <laughs> Seriously, Scott Tobias.
2: It was the, yeah, it's the, it's the, uh, solo, it's the, the it's the, the,
0: the music. Yeah. That was amazing. All right. All right. All right. All right. That was. Literally three seconds in. All right. Let's hope the rest of them go like this and uh, that we, we do better on this one than we did on uh, music cues last time. So uh, Scott Device has a point three seconds into the game. Here's it also helps
5: th- that that took place in a world. <laughs> there are only a couple. With that yeah, uh,
0: I, thought, a I, I thought that was going to throw people because that trailer starts with the whole, you know, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a gangster. Yeah. And in the world thing comes much later. Here's number two.
1: Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. One such film is... Very good, thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please.
4: Once in a life. Time there comes a Mo Shom picture which changes the whole
1: history of Mo (laughs) Shom pictures.
5: Kind of go away with something Python. Uh, the the the, b, 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 the um. Let's do the Holy Grail.
0: You are correct. It is yeah. in fact my Python and the Holy
4: Grail. I Grails. didn't know it was. Uh, I didn't know it was Python. I would have guessed. Yep. guessed uh, meaning of life. Yep. Me too. I almost did, but I don't want to lose a point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love how the Scott Tobias rule makes uh <laughs> it makes our our biggest winner like our most conservative player. Oh, our most cautious player. All right, number three. The story of a boy, a girl, and a
3: universe.
2: Star Wars.
0: <laughs> Alright, Keith. And we are wow. at one apiece. Three in. This is exciting. Here we go. Number four. Speaking of attractions, well, the
4: chorus girls are certainly an attraction, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing Susan
0: Kane. Correct. Mm, yeah. Keith Phipps Ugh. with the win. Uh let's go to number five.
5: Something beyond comprehension is happening to a little girl on this street.
0: In this The Exorcist. Keith, once again, Keith has it. No, number six. (laughs) This may be a fast game.
4: Yeah, the bathroom. Well, they cleaned all this up now.
0: Nathan. Psycho. Very nice. Wow. Not yeah, I love that trailer. That trailer goes on forever. Yeah, a lot of those
4: did back. You know, so they'll show Like it was
0: there's a ton
3: in the second like half.
5: Yeah. Janet Lee dies halfway through. It's, it's Yeah, it gives way, way too much.
0: Oh my gosh, spoilers. Okay, <laughs> number 7.
3: A killer
5: is on the loose. Keeps them alive for 3 days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. <laughs> Uh, texas Deans massacre
0: you are incorrect no! that is minus one for nathan
2: you actually you buzzed him before
0: scott do you have it manhunter no keith that sounds the lambs you are ah. correct <laughs> did all right keith why do the they the go point? with like
4: the the more obscure thomas harris adaptation <laughs> idiot
0: i was i was very tempted to say oh you're super close but i didn't want to give keith any any more edge no. than he already has just by being keith all right, let's go to number eight. Can't
2: help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. It has to be
0: man. of the Apes. All right, well oh, done, man, Keith. this is like
4: you're serving this one up to him, man. Aw. <laughs> oh. uh,
0: Are you
5: familiar is, with that motion picture, uh, Keith? Yeah, a little. This game yeah. is actually secretly called all Keith's favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, but, uh, you're making a monkey out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, on this one.
0: All right, Number nine.
5: It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on earth by those
0: Scott Tobias
4: Raiders of the Lost Ark.
0: You are correct.
4: Was the music that gave it away? Uh, it said "treasure," yeah, me. sort of treasure.
0: All right, uh, Keith is. I got it.
5: National treasure.
0: Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> thanks to the Scott Tobias rule, uh, Keith has torn into the lead with five to Nathan Need and Scott's one leaden. apiece. Oh. Uh, but that that quick pick up on that one uh, gives me a little hope for the future. We've still got a few to go. Uh, let's hear number ten.
3: Welcome to the real world.
0: Keith. Matrix. You are yes. correct. Yeah. Uh, you gotta be you gotta be quick on the uptake to to surpass keith um we have just enough left that you guys could still kick keith's butt yeah uh that's not
2: gonna happen especially <laughs> if they get cocky <laughs> yeah.
0: especially if we can encourage him to charge ahead and ignore the scott tobias rule all right number 11
3: up into the forbidding majesty of the great madre range go men their past buried
0: nathan
5: those magnificent men and their flying machines.
0: No. Yeah. Did
5: uh, I? I you, you did buzz in, I right?
2: Treasure of Madre. You are correct. Oh.
4: No.
0: All right, and with that, uh, Keith has an, uh, an insurmountable lead. <laughs> uh, but we're going to go ahead and continue uh, to see if Nathan can catch up with Scott uh, on the last few. Great, thank you. That's here, number twelve.
3: Not since Scarface, so much action. <laughs> Not since the Marx Brothers, so much comedy. Not since the seven-year itch, so much Marilyn.
0: Scott Tobias. Sound like a hot? You are correct. All right, number 13. They couldn't like each other.
4: Scott? 48 hours.
0: <laughs> that one was Two seconds. Next time, we're going to see if we can get this entire game so wrapped out. in in five minutes flat, just with Scott identifying songs within uh, two seconds of their, of, of their playing. All right, uh, Scott is up to three, <laughs> but Keith's seven is still insurmountable. All right, let's hear number 14. For never
3: before has any film contained such a full measure of the joy of living, the drama of living, and above all, the glory of...
2: A wonderful life
0: <laughs> very nice and above all romance that makes this such a wonderful life hey. so you only had about another second to get That's it. Your destiny <laughs> all right this is the one that uh, this is a little more obscure than the others this is just one of my all-time favorite trailers I had it in here just in case we needed a tiebreaker uh, instead we'll we'll say it's for a hundred billion points and uh, <gasps> anybody who gets it will surpass hey. Keith but I think Keith is the one most likely to get it let's hear the last one he shot 10 million years from now against strange and huge panoramic
1: settings and it is more fantastic more enchanting and more- nathan
5: barbarella
0: you are incorrect no, oh so sad All right. going. more powerful than anything you've seen before wizards any, any guesses the,
1: uh, wizards
0: oh, oh my god scott tobias you get 100 billion points oh wait now that the title of the film actually came up wow. so uh keith gets to keep oh, his overwhelming wizards. victory
2: yeah that's a fun, it's that's wrote, a fun wrote, movie it <laughs> It's a lot of fun Gee. <laughs> i didn't
0: say it was a fun movie yeah. i said it's one of my all-time favorite trailers um all right well once again uh D- keith has uh, run rampant to victory over everybody but uh I, I'm going to give uh, Scott the, the victory in my mind for picking up on 48 hours within two seconds of yeah. play. The boys are back
4: in town. That was yeah. the timeline. All <laughs>
0: right. Perhaps you and uh, you and Nathan can form some sort of wacky partnership to take, uh, to take <laughs> yeah. Crime Lord Keith down in our next game. Thanks for playing, guys. Okay,
5: thank you. All right. Thank you.
0: And now, if you have a minute, you have time for the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell, where we ask two people to recommend something film-related, but force them to do it in just 30 seconds. To up the tension, they'll compete for my approval as host, because I'm not going to watch more than one movie in my remaining lifetime. This week, we have Noel versus Matt. Noel, you're up first. You have 30 seconds of my life.
3: Let's hear it. Well, I'm sorry you said only one movie in your lifetime, because I'm recommending the Criterion box set, The Essential Jacques Demy, which has six films by the legendary French New Wave filmmaker. Demi had this style that combined classic Hollywood, particularly musicals, with uh, personal memoirs from his own boyhood. He dealt with unrequited love. He dealt with the everyday practical problems of life, but did so in a way that was both uh, majestic and realistic.
0: Once again, we have Noel uh, coming in at 25 seconds. Plenty of time to spare for the widows and orphans of the world who, uh, you know, want a few seconds of time. Uh, Matt, you have to compete (laughs) not only with uh, Noel's brevity, uh, but also with his ambition. That's a a pretty big uh, recommendation he's got going there. What do you have for me? Go.
1: Well if if time was a uh, consideration I think I might have an edge because my recommendation is a is a book it's called It Doesn't Suck Showgirls by the film critic Adam Neyman and it's only 196 pages long you could probably read it in uh, I read it in about uh, 24, 36 hours, just a couple of sittings, and it is a really great little book that examines Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus's much maligned 1995 film about Las Vegas topless dancers. Uh, uh, Naaman takes the movie very seriously. He argues it might not be the piece of crap so many. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Couldn't I use like Noel's unused time? Can we get some like rollover or something?
0: You know, I've been a proponent of that in the past, but that would be giving you five more seconds to talk about how Showgirls doesn't suck. And I <laughs> am not sure that I'm going to buy that argument. Um, frankly, I've never seen Showgirls because I've been told so many times by so many people that it does suck. So I'm a little curious to read that argument. Um, but gosh, if I, if it's going to come down to a, a duel between Criterion and Denis and uh, musicals and memoirs versus defending Joe Esterhaus, um, I'm going to give it to all uh, partially on time but also partially just on class sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> matt but uh yeah reading about joe aster house makes me feel slimy thanks guys <laughs> Sadly, we've come to the end of episode 24 of The Dissolve Podcast. Look for episode 25, our quarter centennial edition, in two weeks. There are no comic books or toy lines filling in the blanks between the various versions of The Dissolve, but you can find them all separately on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and at thedissolve.com. You can send questions, comments, topic suggestions, game ideas, and double entendres to Dissolve.com. And as always, we appreciate your rankings and reviews on iTunes, where every mention gives the podcast a slightly higher ranking. Don't worry about Scott Tobias' kids. I'm slipping them a present on the side no matter how many reviews we have. He's such a meanie. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks for listening.
2: Ugh...